GM, happy Friday. Welcome everyone to Law Line with Carlo and Jenko. While we wait for Jenko to step up, I'm going to go ahead and give the disclaimer before we jump into the conversation today. We bring you Law Line in conjunction with Rug Radio, where we talk about new and emerging trends in Web3, NFT, and blockchain law. And that certainly never stops. Whatever we talk about here is entertainment, some information, but is not to be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, please consult a lawyer who's licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. And it's in your best interest to do that confidentially, not on a recorded Twitter space, because we are recording this space, which means we may use it, rebroadcast it any later date on other platforms. And you sitting in with us and hanging with us kind of is a consent to that. So all of that disclaimer out of the way, I think the biggest conversation happening in the space right now is this new bombshell development that the alleged developer of Tornado Cash was arrested overseas and that this is somehow connected to the recent sanctions. Um, A stunning development. I know everyone has opinions on this, as I'm seeing in the feed. And it is certainly a conversation that I think needs to be had. I see that Omri's up, Erdnall's, you're up. You're more than welcome, of course, to come up and speak. Ira, my friend, always love and appreciate your insights on these things. You're welcome to come up. I think Jenko's having a little trouble. It appears that Twitter Spaces has been ruggy today, and I don't know that he's seeing our space. So we'll go ahead and jump into the conversation, and if we can get Jenko in, great. If not, we'll carry on without him. Got a request from... Le Professionnel, former U.S. international litigator, legal auditor. Awesome. Going to bring you up to join the conversation. Thank you for joining us. Yes, got a couple things in regards to OFAC that I could probably uh, point out a little bit down in the conversation. Yeah, by all means, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Um, You know, I tweeted about this this morning. All I have as far as information on this is what has been shared in the nest. I don't have any other specific details about what's going on here. So what do you know and what are your thoughts on this? You know, not so much no. Uh, I guess I know just as much as any other guy. Um, But I've had the pleasure or sometimes displeasure of representing folks who happen to have been on the SDM list. Um, I guess just some couple points of note is that it seems very dramatic being, you know, the sanctions and the, the strict liability that comes with it. Um, but for everyday users, we would not see such a drastic effect. Uh, and specifically, I would say uh, for legal professionals, I'd like to point out that we have specific carve outs for us that allow us to render services to SDMs. Um, while one thing we need to be mindful of is payment uh, for such services that needs to be licensed with OFAC. Um, Conversely, touching tarnished funds would need to be licensed as well. Um, In terms of things like they were discussed recently, you know, the uh, happy 0.1 Ethereum kind of wires and how do everyday users protect themselves. I would like to point out that OFAC uh, has opinion rendering kind of not service, but you uh, you can reach out to OFAC and request an opinion, guidance opinion on particular transactions. They don't do hypotheticals, so it's it's essentially borderlining self-disclosure. But for those affected, unaffected by these kind of happy wires, that would be one of the avenues to kind of address it and protect yourself. Similarly, in terms of self-disclosure, uh, again, you know, if ones are not... Uh, participating in any kind of illicit activity or anything like that, then they may just uh, report and show the transparency there. Obviously, we have a lot of First Amendment issues, a lot of privacy issues. Um, but in terms of getting by on a daily basis, it's uh, it's not as paralyzing as it would seem. So that's sure. a little piece I, uh, of I, No, I appreciate that. I did, I did pin up in the nest. 
what is available publicly, which is the OFAC uh, information that's put out by the U.S. Treasury as far as guidance on how to handle interacting with sanctioned uh, entities with respect to OFAC. I definitely am not touching that issue as far as giving anybody any legal advice on how to handle wallets that they have that are on that list. However, you are right. There are channels open where people can self-report. People can ask for advisories from OFAC, and they should carefully read what the rules are, and they should know that as United States uh, individuals, citizens, entities, this particular protocol is on the list, and interacting with it is at your own peril. So proceed with extreme caution. The most recent development that's troubling a lot of people in addition to, and this conversation has been had on many spaces, and we've even talked about it, is that this seems to be a unique event in that a technology protocol, a code, has been added to the sanction list. And I know that Birdnall, as you talked previously about email encryption, having previously made, made the OFAC list and the hotly contested battle that ensued after that, and many in the space view this as, and I've seen this hashtag fly around, a war on code. So we've sort of transitioned from the law of code to a war on code. And with the arrest of this individual overseas that is now connected to this uh, presumed OFAC sanction, it raises an interesting conversation of where is the conversation going when it comes to free speech freedom to share code which is available on github and how individuals now need to navigate understanding this current climate um i don't have answers but i do have a lot of questions anyone who is available to come up with respect to our legal community i'd love to hear your thoughts on this subject i still don't see jenko in the house sadly so i think he's having some issues on his end but um do you know anything from an overseas perspective on, on, on this particular arrest, sir? If that's a question to me, no, I actually do not. I don't really uh, do much in the, in the European Union these days. But I would take it as more of a, a warning and deterring uh, kind of the widespread use rather than uh, seeming to punish everyone interacting with the code. It's more like the federal uh, folks here and abroad would, would just prefer us to kind of not touch it for the time being. They, uh, they dragging us into a protected constitutional litigation battle for this to, uh, to sift through, but I, I would believe they're just buying time uh, in order to come up with a more appropriate framework. Uh, I don't think they're well prepared in terms of technical, technological understanding of the subject matter. Um, so I would say they're just buying time, but in the meantime, and they, uh, they're flashing all these drastic measures to simply deter everyday users uh, who are not sophisticated enough. So it would definitely have a chilling effect, uh, no matter how you slice it. Um, but I think it's they're just buying a lot of time by kind of uh, firing a cannon here, you know, yeah, with a very it, it novel is, issue. It is a very bold overture. It's definitely a very bold move. And it has had a chilling effect because it's, it's scared people who have had any connection whatsoever with this, uh, with this code on any wallet. And you talked about the, uh, the airdrop of 0.1 ETH to people. So it's definitely created a lot of confusion, a lot of fear. And then there is, of course, the question of how people that are not uh, bound by the OFAC sanction because they don't have any connection to the United States, how they're going to interact with this platform. I brought up Omri to speak. Matt, you came up as well. Omri, being a UK lawyer, and uh, I know you've had some thoughts on this. I'd love to hear your thoughts, if you could share them. GM. GM, GM. Thanks a lot, Carlo. Um, nice to be here with everyone. So I think, you know, when I read, so it's hard to, to understand exactly what has happened. You know, every article is quite brief. But I came across an article on The Verge that, you know, where, where it says that the Netherlands Fiscal Information and Investigation Service and basically released a statement and said that the individual in question, so the developer that was you know, arrested uh, in the Netherlands, is suspected of involvement in concealing criminal financial flows. 
facilitating money laundering. So I think that, you know, maybe we jumped the gun because the guy was allegedly the developer of uh, one of the developers for Tornado Cash. But uh, perhaps, you know, the, the arrest came into play as part of a wider investigation and perhaps the, the individual you know, in question, uh, you know, was arrested not because he developed or was part of the development team of Tornado Cash and not because he used it, but perhaps because he was part of, say, an organized effort to, um, you know, launder money through Tornado Cash. Yeah, so I, I see what you're saying there, because the question is, were there some overt acts that were committed by this mm-hmm. person in furtherance of money laundering, in furtherance of cryptocurrency fraud, or is this strictly an arrest because this person created the platform that people are abusing? Because that would be the equivalent of the developer of WhatsApp being charged because people abuse WhatsApp to commit fraud. And that yeah. would certainly be a stunning development. So I tend to agree with you, Omri. We don't have a lot of information right now, and there may be more to this, and this person may allegedly have a much more involved role in facilitating money laundering, at least as suggested in the article that we see. And if that's the case, that does change the conversation a bit. Um, I guess we'll have to wait on that. But, you know, the bigger conversation that still remains is, is, is code sanctionable? And what does this mean going forward for the space is this attack on the blockchain? And I know we've got, we've got ex-lawyer in the house, and I've seen your tweets where you talk about the many legitimate uses of Tornado Cash and that to simply paint in very, very broad strokes that this is used for money laundering sort of negates the, the anonymity that people like to enjoy when it comes to their wallets and their bank accounts. Nobody wants all of their bank holdings and financial holdings to be completely transparent and available for anyone to see. So it's an interesting, interesting conversation. Yeah. And, and if I can just follow up that with one more point, uh, if that's okay, uh, then I'll be quiet. Absolutely. But uh, basically, one thing that I find interesting is that the fact that now, you know, OFAC has reacted the way that it has reacted and has effectively listed a platform or a software, let's say, uh, within the list, on the one end is bad, and we talked about it a bit, you know, in the chat. Um, on the other end, it could be a way to move forward towards some form of uh, recognition of decentralization. Because, you know, if you want something to be decentralized, you can't really hold uh, people accountable, right? The whole concept is that the software is independent. And, you know, I think when you look at AI, that could become even more interesting. So what you can do is basically to forbid people from interacting with the software. So that could be a way, uh, and you know, there are pros and cons, but what I find interesting is that it sounds like code is now being acknowledged, you know, being acknowledged as a sort of an entity, almost like a legal person. And I find that's interesting because then it means that perhaps uh, one day um, automated code, you know, that is completely independent and uh, decentralized and AI perhaps that lies outside of anyone's control can be recognized as a separate entity, as a legal person. And I think that, that that's, you know, an interesting development. Yeah, exactly. And Matt, I know you got your hand up. I want to bring you up. Thank you, Omri. And the other thing about that that's interesting, too, is from a developer standpoint, this could end up being a game of whack-a-mole because you could just keep forking and changing this code and launching it as a different variant of Tornado Cash. And are they just going to keep trying to now go and stop up every one of those mixer alternatives is this going to be a whack-a-mole sort of a situation gm talk to us man welcome gm gm everybody gm carlo thanks for having me up i I actually it's funny you mentioned that omri said a lot of the stuff that i i wanted to just discuss um but i have been seeing chatter about people and using these spin-off tornado cash um platforms so it's just kind of scary but um I, I think it's important you know just to keep in mind um that there may certainly be something else going on and until we see more or no more get some sort of an accusatory instrument or something you know we really we really don't know and there could be a lot more uh to it i i see a lot of people were tweeting out whoa you know it's just a it's just a war on developers and well we don't we don't really know so kind of hang back with respect to that. But I, I mean, I, I think this is a big deal for developers period and whether it's just, 
related, you know, whether this, this person did other things, uh, you know, that's, that's important. But I think going forward, you know, this is something that developers really need to keep in mind. And it's just an unfortunate consequence of what happens when you have stuff that you use to, for good, people come, bad actors come and use it for bad. And going forward, uh, you know, I think every developer who has their hands or whatever on these types of projects really need to keep this in mind um, because you never know what organization is coming. And this is clearly going to be an international effort and resources are not going to be a problem here. So uh, just keep an eye out. Be, be careful out there. Excellent points, Matt. Ira, you came up. I do want to follow up on Matt before I bring you up, my man. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to hear your thoughts, Ira. It, you know, this is something that has followed cryptocurrency since the inception of the blockchain. I, I've always talked about this sort of all reverts back to the Silk Road case where the blockchain got its really dubious um, label as being used for criminal activity. It was a politically uh, motivated um, agenda and messaging campaign in order to confront and prosecute the Silk Road uh, criminal enterprise, and that was certainly a justified thing to do. However, unfortunately, that stigma ended up sticking with the technology, and it seems to just be a repetitive thing that crypto is a vehicle for fraud. And this is now another variant of that, where using a mixer is simply a device for fraud. So it's a narrative that's that's got to be addressed because, as has been very well observed, there are many amazing utilities that come from the blockchain and there are many legitimate utilities that can come from something like tornado cash. So Ira, what do you think, my man? Welcome. Hey, Carlo. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, I think a lot of what was said before is what I think. I mean, you, Omri, Matt, uh, lay professor. I hope I got that right in my own New York accent. Lay professional. There, there you go. Um, so let's go back to Vitalik and Ethereum and it's a dual use technology as everyone's alluding to could be used for good things and for bad things. The good things were definitely leading in terms of mixers. Um, it was designed because tracing is so precise on Ethereum and other blockchains the thought was that in order for folks to have privacy, good faith privacy, so they get paid by someone, that someone who paid them can't now track all the uses. Like an employer can't now track an employee's uses of whatever the funds are if they want to go ahead and buy certain things or do certain things. And so the thought was, all right, well, you create a mixer so that you could take the incredibly solid tracing found on the blockchain and Etherscan and all, that, all those great tools. And you make it so there could be some quantum of privacy. You know, look, folks could still use super sophisticated tools that could um, kind of mitigate the combinatorial explosion of a mixer. But those are so advanced that, you know, using a mixer is pretty good privacy. And then, of course, we all love that. We, you know, there's also rogue jurisdictions that are hostile to American law, and if folks are making money there, you know, those folks don't want the government to know because it could be, you know, it could be used for nefarious things for the government to lean on them. So it has its great uses, and it also has its bad uses because it could hide money laundering. And so when the government comes in right now, um, they don't focus on all the great uses. They focus on the bad uses. They don't say it's a dual-use technology tough policy decision, what do we do? You know, they, they go ahead and they, they talk pretty much 100% about only the bad things. And well, what's interesting, same... I'm sorry, our, you know, what's interesting about what you're saying, and I want to I follow up on this, because you have a unique position in this in that you sort of were there in the room where it happened with the founders. You're saying that mixing was something that was in the conversation from its inception as being a necessary tool because of the ultimate transparency of the blockchain? Um, 
I can't say that I was in the room with the founders. I can say that this was this kind of tracing shortly. Well, this kind of tracing has become obvious and folks who are involved in blockchains uh, are looking for ways to mitigate privacy concerns. I got you. Okay. No, I just wanted to make sure I understood that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying basically is it was, it was sort of an iteration and, and sort of a, a, a spinoff of the original inception of Ethereum, that this was something that had to be devised in order to deal with what was basically a completely transparent way to track people's wallets and what's in their wallets. Yes, yes. And if you go all the way back to Bitcoin, even before Ethereum, it was a problem even before Ethereum was even born. Um, and Monero came out also as kind of a potential solution. This has been something that's been around for a very long time in terms of the blockchain history. Uh, Monero was supposed to be a, you know, a privacy token. Um, it still is. But in, in any event, this has now become really obvious. Silk Road was a perfect example of that. Um, companies were formed, as we all know, <clears throat> whose main purpose it is, is to analyze blockchains for law enforcement and for forensic data gathering. And the tools have become really, really strong and precise. And so mixing technology is kind of the mitigator. And then it's a dual-use technology. So folks who want to attack mixers come in and talk about the bad uses. And folks who want to support mixing talk about the good uses. But the real issue is the complicated policy decision that folks like Treasury and others really ought to engage in, which is how do we promote the good uses and mitigate the bad uses? So, okay, so what's what's the big picture here? Because I, I guess that's probably, you know, trending to the more interesting points. Here, here's, here's a couple of thoughts that I have, and I'd love to know what you think about it. When you look at what happened here, um, it seems that the thing that the thing that hurts the blockchain right now is actually the irony, which is a lack of privacy. And if folks can't get more privacy, they may be chilled from using it. And it actually may actually be a security risk because if you could trace who's getting a ton of crypto to their wallets, it could become a personal risk uh, for them and you know the lack of privacy and how they spend it very very big risk yeah we had it uh, a couple of weeks ago doj reported right. that they broke up a scheme to do a home invasion at someone whose wallet had a ton of bitcoin and luckily they they were able to stop that from happening so yeah it's a legitimate concern thank you ira so, ex-lawyer you came up and we've got uh, billy jitsu the dev and definitely, Omri, I want to hear you. You've got your hand up. But ex-lawyer, what are your thoughts on what Ira's saying and where this conversation is going? May, may, yeah. may, I just, may I just add one last point? I, Absolutely, sorry, man. Absolutely, uh, yes. Yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry for being wordy today. Um, so where I think it, it's also headed is that the problem that the Treasury Department had right here was that they're seemingly attacking code, which is the mixer. But what they really are attacking and this is where I'm concerned the slippery slope might, might go, is a DAO. And at some point, with this kind of pressure, there'll probably be litigation and clarification that is antagonistic to DAOs, that DAOs may very well be nothing more than partnerships in disguise, which would then open up DAOs to litigation. And then when litigation commences against a DAO for being a partnership, that's when some crumbling will occur and people may start realizing that there's not much benefit to having a DAO over an LLC or, or, you know, even if the DAO is an LLC, there's not much advantage to having a DAO. And I'm concerned that these types of matters will lead to scrutiny of what exactly a DAO is. And somebody might call it, unfortunately, a RICO conspiracy, which is basically, you know, uh, you know what it is. You could explain that, Carlo. Anyway, that's I'll, I'll stop talking, but that's that's my main point. No, that's a very good observation on the long tail potential consequences of this move. And it sets it up perfectly for you, ex-lawyer. Bring it. What do you got? Yeah, thank you. So I fall firmly into the camp of these mixing services um, are a good thing. If you think about your bank account, 
um, your bank account, every penny that comes in and that goes out is private. Even in, at least in the United States, even the government doesn't see uh, how you spend your money. Now there, you know, there have been some proposals for some laws to let the government see it. But if you want to go and spend money and buy a gun, um, the government doesn't see that. If you want to go and donate to a particular um, political party, the government and the public doesn't see that. And so what Ira was saying about the transparency of the blockchain um, kind of creates a problem for usage because people like to have uh, you know, like to have some some anonymity in how they spend their money. Um, I think that's true. And so, what these mixers do is they they give that um, they give that privacy back to you. And so, I think really what the governments are trying to get to here is I, I'm feeling pretty sure that they don't like non custodial wallets. We can see. Um, in some of the regulations that are being proposed in Europe right now, that there are some, uh, and in fact, in Canada and stuff, that uh, when you send money out of a centralized exchange, you have to say who owns the non-custodial wallet that you're sending it to. So I think if you were to create a mixer uh, that was a service, but you required people to KYC in order to use it, that you might be able to um, get around some of these issues that Treasury has raised, because then the governments could go to the mixing service and say, hey, we need to know uh, who this person is, where this money came from, and where it's going, if there was an actual criminal investigation. Um, and so I think what world governments are doing is they're taking the position that uh, anti-money laundering um, and terrorism are reasons to stop these services. But if you look at all of the studies that have been done on AML uh, rules and KYC rules, they basically all say that they have very, very little effect on actually stopping the illicit use uh, of funds. And, you know, when you talk about a mixer, it's this technology that lets you uh, kind of gives you privacy on how you spend your money. But you want to know what else gives you privacy on how you spend your money? Cash. And if you look at some of the world governments, what they have done to, to combat that issue, look at India. India has basically gotten rid of small denomination bills in order to, you know, try. It really, their stated uh, stated purpose is to avoid um, people avoiding paying taxes. And so, I, I feel like these mixers they they have more legitimate uses than not. Are there going to be bad players? Yeah, sure. But I mean, if you just think about like, if you run a business and you have customers, do you really want all of your competitors to know who all of your customers are? Because if, if it's all transparent, then every competitor knows all of your customers, every competitor knows all of your vendors, all of your suppliers, etc. And so I, I feel like ultimately this is the first step in attack on non-custodial wallets uh, and trying to force KYC and AML regulations across all of crypto in uh, every instance. I've talked about this for months and I've sh I share your view. I've felt like a lot of this regulation is geared towards non-custodial wallets. And I agree with you also with respect to AML and to the KYC components as not being uh, as effective as people might think they are in the traditional banking world. I, I had a federal sentencing this morning on an unlicensed money exchanger federal case. And, you know, it's, it's probably a drop in the bucket as far as what actually gets through and is laundered because you're right. The, the banking system is not able to keep up with and catch all of it. And people are constantly coming up with new and creative ways using unlicensed money transmitters uh, to, to try and bypass these protocols. And what they typically do is they, they recruit unwitting people and they give them fractional percentages of the money that they deposit. And then they instruct them to send that money somewhere else. And these people do it because they think it's a way to make easy money. And then they end up being indicted in a conspiracy and the person who's at the top of the conspiracy is usually never found because they're overseas 
And they're the ones who created the scheme, who profited tremendously from the scheme, and they leave these people on the low end of the rung, holding the bag to have to go to prison. So you're right. And this is just a continuation of that conversation. Now it's, it's the blockchain and it's tornado cash and it's unhosted wallets. I want to bring up Billy Le Professional. You've got your hand up. I think Omri had to drop out, probably had to get back to work. But Billy, the dev, talk to us, man. What do you think? Hey, hey. Uh, yeah, overall, I think it sets like the way they have it right now, heavy handed, is a really bad precedent. I mean, to use an example, I, I think most everybody here is familiar with NFT contracts. But let's say pre-mint XYZ, um, you know, you can deploy your own NFT contract. So let's say North Korea now starts minting NFTs and they use that to funnel money across the board. And then they funnel it through royalties on OpenSea. Um, I mean, obviously, nefarious use. What causes the difference between that and tornado? tornado. So there, there's a big difference of like, you know, you, you create something with, you know, good intentions, but then, you know, it, it's used for nefarious purposes. Um, so there, there's there's no there's no line draw on, on where that is of where code becomes you know who decides what in a sense and and the heavy handed is it's open for anything so really bad overall privacy I'm pro privacy again I, I pay my taxes I feel like I'm a pretty good citizen uh, but I I do use privacy networks and I'll give you a few examples that are not really thought of is if somebody wanted to pick on somebody in this room and uh, they knew their wallet address they can mess with you totally so let's say you wanted to do a swap on Uniswap. I could do a, 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 not me, but someone could do a sandwich attack on this. So now you're constantly paying premium. Let's say you had an NFT, you had a board ape and it went up to a million dollars and you cashed out and you want to send it to Coinbase to, to sell it for cash. Well, as soon as that transaction happens, someone can front run you and have some tornado cash, you know, thrown in that same wallet. All of a sudden, now you have all the mixture of all that money. Now it's tainted. Now it's on hold on Coinbase. And all this can be done by knowing somebody's address and just literally monitoring all your activities and then front run you right right in front of you. So there is a true, true value in in, uh, in privacy over here. And let's not remember, you know, the, the beginning days of Ethereum, you didn't get it through an exchange, you mined it. And so there was no KYC. So like nowadays, you know, if you get it through Coinbase, you get through an exchange and you have to do all that. But in the beginning, there's a lot of people with, you know, a lot of different wallets out there that we don't know who had it. You, you, you mined it to earn it. So there, there's a lot of different things that we have to consider in, in this precedent of what's happening here on privacy and and deploying good intention code that could be used for bad. Like a lot of people can find a lot of creative ways to do so. So that that's my, my personal opinion of it. Yeah, no, all good points. I mean, I've often thought about that as well, that NFTs could easily be used, inflated prices, white lists, all these tools could be used to facilitate fraudulent transactions and money launder, just like tornado cash can. I mean, that cash can be used, WhatsApp can be used, Western Union can be used. I've seen all variants of this in my time practicing law. So you're right. Any legitimate tool can be used for illegitimate means. And you're simply illustrating that in a very, very good way. Uh, Le Professional, what do you think? You know, I think all, all were great points and everybody kind of uh, gave interesting insights into very kind of specific niches. So, you know, on one hand, we have Silk Road that we really kind of have hanging there all this time. And it would seem that we don't really want to spark another uh, Silk Road kind of trial and scrutiny here. So not to uh, spook the investors, realistically speaking, when you have BlackRock entering the market, they want it safe, but they won't have somebody to play with and somebody to farm on. Uh, and then RICO issues, this is a very interesting argument because not only do you have criminal RICO, but this can also impose civil RICO liability. It's been a little bit more stringent than the last couple of years in terms of the standard that applies. Uh, but would it also potentially pave the road for disgruntled investors or DAO members to open uh uh, to open the entity or you know if we see rico as a uh, dao as a person can we rope him in into court based on you know on the rico on the civil rico doctrine that's an interesting aspect there for sure in addition to the criminal uh liability there now cash and i think you know cash absolutely this this is easy medium for facilitating all kinds of illegal activity and i think you meant uh, somebody mentioned india i believe israel just recently 
uh, impose something. To, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe ballpark of five five thousand dollars cash for kind of business transactions. I think they capped it, uh, something along those lines. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the case. Um, and then wallets, uh, non custodial wallets, and KYC compliance. This would actually uh, this would annihilate most of these startups. Uh, non-custodial wallet startups, most of them are very small. There's only a handful that may be able, even if they were willing to comply and kind of gather the data and do the KYC and AML requirements, uh, they may not have the resources to jump through all those compliance hoops. Just just like that, you know, we're chilling technology just because we're instituting these humongous barriers. Uh, but it's also a fine line, obviously, you know, we kind of want... Uh, people to have the safety and the privacy in what they do, but we also need to have some sort of ability to track illicit actors. So it's it's a very kind of interesting fine line that we'll be having to dance here without nuking the entire industry because of these uh, draconian compliance uh, requirements. You're right, because those those sort of drastic regulations can drive innovation overseas and can take us away from being leaders in this space, which can hurt the economy, and it can hurt all the money that's being invested in these platforms, and it can send a lot of talent overseas. So yes, outstanding points. Latoshi, the legend, if you don't know about his uh, blog, give him a follow. He puts out an outstanding codex blog where he keeps track of blockchain and records it all. And basically he's writing the treatise of blockchain law while we're all sitting here talking. So props to him. I want to send him flowers and then I want to hear from Bird Nalls. What do you think, Latoshi? <laughs> Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Uh, I appreciate all you do, Carlo. Uh, hosting this space is, is awesome. So I jumped up just to say that uh, on NFTs and money laundering, the Treasury Department has already caught on to this concept and has said explicitly we think NFTs will be a tool of money laundering and we're trying to figure out how to track that. So, you know, it, like they're getting more, like, you know, everything's accelerating. The tre treasury department is accelerating too and its sophistication and how it's looking at this stuff. And th they will very much be, you know, expecting, I would say, you know, they haven't said this explicitly, but I think it's coming in the near future that, you know, NFT projects, you know, NFT exchanges are going to have, I mean, I think they're going to get looped into things like the Bank Secrecy Act and, you know, uh, you know, FinCEN, and they're going to get, start getting treated like they need to be doing all of these things for the very reason that, it, it is, you know, art has historically been a fantastic tool for money laundering because you have these pieces of exceptional value that can sit in a free port somewhere that, you know, nobody can touch, but they're worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And so Treasury knows this, and then they say, ah, digital art, okay, it's now becoming very valuable and it, it will likely be able to be used in the same way. If it can be used totally anonymously, that's going to be very dangerous. So just looking to the future of that particular space, I think we can expect to see all kinds of, you know, you know, unfortunately I think enforcement will come first and then we'll actually get clarity on the rules and the expectations for, you know, exchanges and projects as they're putting these things out there. Yeah, phenomenal that you put it in context that Treasury's looking at NFTs as a vehicle. I think the takeaway from that is that uh, we're going to have to probably spin up some kind of a serum and we're going to have to uh, drop that serum on a bunch of lawyers out there and make them blockchain lawyers because we clearly don't have enough to handle what's incoming. Bernals, what do you think, man? Yeah, just a, a few things. Um, first, I mean, I know we've talked about the open sea a little bit and the conviction of the founder. I think that can probably be distinguished from what we know about this case right now and the fact that by all accounts, the founder of Silk Road was actually involved in at least some uh, illegal narcotics uh, trafficking himself. 
And I know that it, I know that he was never actually like charged with anything, but the reason, one of the main reasons he got life in prison seems to be because there was some evidence of murder for hire schemes um, that were also involved in that case. Uh, like I said, it, it wasn't a part of that case, but I know the judge considered that when he got his life sentence. So it, it seems a little bit different. We don't know the facts here. We don't know if this individual was actively assisting with any of, with the use of Toyo by uh, individuals that um, they knew were using illicit activities or trying to uh, launder ill-gotten gains on there. Or if he's just if it's just straight code. So I think it's a little bit early to say if this is like a Silk Road issue or if this truly is purely code. Uh, and like we, I think we talked about it uh, either yesterday or day before on the spaces. But the the issue of encryption and how that faced similar kind of issues at one point. Uh, there were federal regulations on requiring licensing. If you uh, release certain levels of encryption information that could be accessed by uh, foreign actors, and that was challenged under free speech grounds, and and they won on free speech grounds, saying that no, uh, you can't just because it could be used by this code could be used by uh, uh, foreign actors or could be used in a illicit manner didn't necessarily uh, uh, reach the level of national security interests to allow us to uh, have a, a restraint on this otherwise free speech. So I think that that's going to be a large fighting ground on these issues as well. On uh, If something that is truly neutral, if it can be used by both illicit actors and for legitimately means, um, if that is protected by free speech and if there is a compelling enough government interest to chill that speech or to otherwise regulate or or uh, have some kind of effect on that. So those so, are my two thoughts. I, I got a question for you, uh, Bird and Alls. This is yep. these really, really good points. <clears throat> but and I've lived this through litigation, um, you know, because the dual use arguments are made for online copyright issues, too. Could be used for infringing and non-infringing purposes, but here um, it is a neutral technology. But do you think this would have happened <clears throat> with Treasury if this was not a national security concern that North Korea was getting hundreds of millions of dollars from a hack, and North Korea is not exactly, uh, you know, friendly to the United States? Do you think that's pretty much as simple as that? No, I, I do think that that absolutely is is the main reason that they went after is the fact that it was to have direct ties to North Korean money. Um, same thing in the Bernstein case, the encryption technology they were trying to prevent was encryption that uh, could be accessed online and could be accessed by anyone, including, and they included in that case, the fact that someone in Iran, which was the hot topic in the, in the early two, in the early 2000s, late nineties, that Iranian uh, uh, hackers could use that same encryption technology. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I 100% agree that the reason that they brought it against tornado and not against any of the other mixing services isn't because of just simply tornado size, but because that was the one that the North Koreans chose to use. Great points, Bernals. I, uh, I pinned up to the nest um, an audius podcast that I had previously done where I did about a 45 minute deep dive into the, uh, into the Silk Road case. If anyone wants to give that a listen, it sort of truncates the history of that case and the prosecution. And like Bernal said, the, the scheme for murder for hire, that was sort of the, last straw um it's a hell of a story for those of you who don't know it i've always likened it to the origins of blockchain crime it's sort of the the it's sort of the nexus where all of it comes out so anyone who wants to give that a listen that's a decentralized uh podcast and uh it's it's an interesting application but um you've got your hand up again like professional what did that spark in you what are you thinking my apologies for being wordy and kind of trying to weigh in on every point, but these, there are so many good ones. Uh, it's just it's hard to resist. You know, on the point of NFTs and money laundering, I think we're 
in terms of enforcement, we're there already, just maybe not in terms of so much in the U.S., but uh, I don't know maybe who followed. Uh, late July, a Latvian artist had his entire his assets seized because uh, specifically of, of NFT money laundering that that's been alleged. Uh, so that's you know it's it may not be here. We might maybe still talking hypotheticals here, but it's it's out there already. So yeah, it's I, I definitely foresee that being um, being something that's going to be pursued. Um, I've got. I've got involvement in blockchain crime cases. Um, mostly they come in the form of Bitcoin money laundering, but I think we are going to start to probably see a pivot. Um, I think the government is largely right now trying to catch up and they're, they're very good at this, of course, but the learning curve is steep. They've got to retool and train all these agents to understand now the nuances of tokenized uh, blockchain transactions, non-fungible tokens, and I think they're going to get up to speed and they're going to have white hat hackers and they're going to have computer algorithms and they're going to have contract providers from the private sector that are going to help them very quickly understand this stuff. Because that's the that's the toolkit for every new crime that they add. When they launched that cryptocurrency task force, they devoted a lot of resources to this. So I think they're going to rapidly retool and, and really be very swift in coming in and going after these types of things. Um, imagine, no all the resources, imagine all the resources they're going to spend to train 87,000 IRS agents to yeah. have a yeah. grasp of all of this. Uh, and, you know, exactly. in terms of North Korea, though, I will respectfully disagree with my colleagues. I would believe that this is more of a pretext here. I think they needs to be their need. Uh, the government felt like it needed to step in. Uh, in terms of the mixers and in terms of kind of drawing a line, at least for the t time being. But I would say the North Korea was just a very convenient pretext and tornado being so large as well. Um, they just made him a prime target. Well, I, it was an easy, I think it, it would still take thing. place. but It was an easy thing to add on because North Korea was responsible for, I think, the biggest uh, cryptocurrency fraud. So it's just an easy way to tag on to that, that they committed this historically huge cryptocurrency fraud and then they also used tornado to facilitate laundering those proceeds so it just sorry and also just to table. be to be clear it's also it shows that these these mixing services aren't perfect and that you can decrypt things that have gone through mixed services especially very large transfers um because we know it was north korea and we were able to kind of uh, decrypt those based on when these mixed services don't have large amounts of liquidity, when when large amounts of liquidity do end up passing through them in single transactions, those can be uh, can be unwound uh, with a with a decent amount of crypto forensics. So it's not like these mixed services are perfect or that they are capable of hiding absolutely everything, especially when it comes to larger transactions. You're 100 percent right, because they used in the big Bitcoin seizure that we had over the summer, the biggest Bitcoin seizure ever. I believe they used a very sophisticated computer algorithm to unpack all the tornadoing. You got your hand up, ex-lawyer. Ira, you were about to say something and then definitely want to hear from Billy. Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, to, to kind of go with what Birdnell is saying there, um, back in I think it was January, um, there was a uh, an indictment of two guys that created a rug pull um, NFT project. It was called the Frosties Project. Um, I wrote a really long thread about it, and if you read through that, that one of the um, uh, one of the things that they were being charged with was money laundering because they used Tornado. But if you know if somebody is using Tornado or a mixer and um, they're not being super careful about what they do after it goes through. You can absolutely trace it back. Um, yes, large deposits like Birdnell suggested, but what they did is they had a KYC Coinbase account that they bought the crypto with, They um, th that they had bought some crypto with. Then they did their project. They collected the ETH. They threw it through Tornado, and then they sent it uh, they sent the tornadoed crypto back to their KYC Coinbase account, and the government was able to trace all of that through. And so 
you know, I stand by my position that there are still lots of legitimate uses for these. And, you know, every lawyer in the room, and I'm sure that there are some non-lawyers in the room, know the old adage that uh, bad facts make bad law. Um, I just think it's completely wrong to take the worst cases and create regulation around the worst cases. Should we be, you know, should we be careful and watching North Korea? And yeah, absolutely. But should we base all of our regulations around what a rogue government does? Absolutely not. Good points. Very good points. And I agree with you. They reverse engineered that Frosty's case. And it was really easy to do between credit card records, the Fiverr artists that they used, the Coinbase on-ramping and off-ramping from the uh, unhosted wallet. It's all so easy. Uh, Billy, Jitsu, you got your hand up, and I bet you would agree with me on this. People, people think they're safe because they have unhosted wallets, but they don't realize when they're on-ramping their, their crypto from centralized platforms like Coinbase, those are subject to AML and KYC, and it's very easy for the government to subpoena those records and backtrack. Yeah, 100%. Like, <laughs> I don't, sometimes I, I wonder if people actually think these things through sometimes. <laughs> when you look at all these hacks and like, you send it to a centralized exchange, it's like the worst thing you could ever do. But, but two points I wanted to cover on this is the two cases that the previous lawyer said about the NFTs and the, uh, the other NFT project. The main point I wanted to say is the actual bad actor was the one that got punished, not the creator of the NFT code. So that's one of the big key things that I wanted to say, like pre-mint XYZ is a, you know, contract mentor. And right now what we're seeing here is the guy, you know, we allegedly, we don't know yet, but the creator Tornado Cash just created the software. He didn't actually do an action. We don't know yet. So that's the key difference between those two overall. So one idea that I do have is if we do want to not attack privacy, then let's have a similar Tornado Cash that only has a limit of $1,000. So people can, you know, do their transactions for less than a thousand. It stops hackers from moving millions of dollars unless they want to do it over you know, the course of like 10 years and, and make that a, a nice, easy, you know, happy middle situation overall as a general idea for people to keep their privacy but not funnel millions of dollars over time. Myra, anything you wanted to add? Because I know that, that that particular comment by Billy threw up a hand from Latoshi. So what do you think, Ira? And then I want to hear from Latoshi. Uh, let let Latoshi go, and then and then I'll, then I'll go. All right, my man. Yeah, we got so, Latoshi. Bring it, Billy. It's interesting. I mean, what and what you're describing, and kind of what ex lawyer described a few minutes ago, is essentially recreating classic banking under the auspices of the Bank Secrecy Act, because you know right now any traditional financial institution, any transaction that involves $10,000 in cash, either, you know, just a flat amount, or it appears that somebody's structuring it to, you know, be less than 10,000, but, you know, it adds up to 10,000. That's subject to something called a, a um, currency transaction report, a CTR. And it has to be reported to FinCEN. And, you know, similarly, there, you know, traditional banking, you know, you get the anonymity from the government, you know, at the outset and from everybody else for whatever transactions you're doing, only the bank can see until, you know, somebody suspects you of a crime and then, or you're in a civil lawsuit and then they can subpoena the bank's records and get access to that. So, you know, it, it's kind of, I'm sitting here kind of scratching my head, I guess, because, it, you know, in a way we've come full circle to say all of these, you know, protections that are in place for traditional banking, you know, maybe those are a fair compromise in terms of how the financial system ought to work. And I don't know that that's actually consistent with, it's certainly consistent with how everybody uses money today for the most part. But it's inconsistent for sure with a lot of the crypto Web3 ethos of I want non-custodial wallets, I want my money to be mine, and I want pure anonymity no matter what. But, you know, I think that was 
to have a mainstream adoption of something like that, I think was mostly fantasy to, to imagine that you're going to have, you know, a huge amount of finance that's just totally outside of government oversight. It's just, you know, it was never going to happen. And we're seeing government, you know, authorities step in to say, no, you have to participate in regulation to be legitimate. And I think we're seeing an overcorrection right now based on some of the, the abuses so far. Billy Jitsu, I want to give you the opportunity to offer a counterpoint to that. You had your hand up. Oh, Thank yeah. Def- I, I just wanted to put up the, the fact that Bitcoin itself was, was designed to be anti-government in the sense of you know, not being tied to any specific. I know it's not above the law, and wherever we put our feet on our soil, we have to follow the rules. But the basis itself was to be in current, current, well, less in a sense, in which it has its own value across different worlds. That's why people were running their own nodes and having everything situated. And now people got kind of comfortable or I would say semi-lazy or just, you know, uneducated. And so they allowed centralized services to do so. Um, but, you know, there's, again, two different sides of the coin. And there's at those of people that still run their own nodes and still want to, you know, fight for that fight. And then the people that, you know, say, hey, you know, just comply with the rules and you'll be okay. So, you know, there's, there's different happy mediums in, in every way we want to go. It just depends are you here for the new tech and the new opportunity or are you here for the mission, you know, overall. I think it's a little bit of both, Billy, and I want to hear from Ira before we close out, but I think it's a, it's a little bit of both because I think what happened largely here is that the government let the experiment proceed until the point that we got to mass adoption. And now that we're seeing mass adoption of the technology, I think the government's in a position where they're not comfortable letting the experiment continue on without putting guardrails on with respect to AML and KYC and making things more uh, subject to surveillance. And I'm not saying one side is good or bad. I understand the merits of the blockchain. I understand the merits of the initial Satoshi paper and Bitcoin. But I think governments are threatened when it comes to their currency. And now the conversation about having a national cryptocurrency opens up this conversation even more to the government needs to have stronger control over how this money is going in and out of the, out of the blockchain. And, and that's where we're at. That, that threw your hand up, ex-lawyer. What do you think? There's a huge difference between the government having some oversight over your bank account and having to subpoena it and that sort of thing and the public blockchain. Um, you know, the government has to go through legal process to get access to your bank account. If a blockchain is public, then the government can look at it at any time. And you've all seen um, some of the AI art that's been created. AI is not just being used for art. I guarantee you within the next couple of years, if it doesn't exist already, that there are going to be very strong AIs that look at transactions on the blockchain and look for specific things. And I just see a dystopian future if you know the government decides to weaponize those and say, hey, we don't like people that donate to this cause. We don't like people that spend this money on this thing. That is, that is a terrifying thing for me. And I see this as a huge problem that we have to solve. Yeah, you're, you're right. A lot of problems are coming up. And the more we mainstream this, and the more it becomes part of the public conversation, uh, the more we're going to confront these things. Um, I want to give Ira the last word before we close out. We've come up on the hour. We could definitely continue this conversation at later dates. But Ira, what are your thoughts before we close out? Um, okay. I, I was going to go with something really pragmatic, but I'll, I'll avoid that. I'm going to go more general here. And I think what's going on right now stands for the proposition you know, that nothing is decentralized. I mean, the ledgers are decentralized. I get it. So is HTTP. That's decentralized, too, and it's self-healing. BitTorrents, you know, decentralized and self-healing. The, the reality of this is, is that when you look at what happened to Tornado, you know, the Tornado Mixing Service, they have access to broadband services they could subpoena. They could look at TCP IP connections in Web 2. 
Um, a lot of the nodes are on central servers. A lot of Discord stuff could be subpoenaed or, you know, search warrants. Um, someone's house has bandwidth with it and Wi-Fi, all that centralized. The, the sad reality of this is, is that um, portions of what we're doing are cool and decentralized. But at the end of the day, the key components remain centralized and under government authority. And they can enjoin you and stop you. And right here, I just see a big national security interest that was basically at odds with the government's experiment in letting decentralization flourish. That policy issue is not going to go away. But right now, when the downside became too great for the United States and letting South and North Korea get hundreds of millions of dollars this way, they basically put their foot down. So that's kind of like my distillation of it. Yeah, I have to tend to agree with you that on that, knowing knowing what I know about how the government you know, deconstructs these cases and investigates them. It's very difficult. And I think, you know, developers and people who want to try to stay ahead of this certainly get more and more creative on how they want to, you know, quote unquote, cover their tracks and so forth. But in the end, there are so many ways. There are so many providers. We, we're talking on a cell phones and computers that are working on centralized internet providers it's it's impossible to be strictly decentralized in this world. Um, that's a great place to stop because this is a conversation that really could go on. To those who I did not get to speak with this time around, I welcome you to come back to the conversation. We do this every Tuesday through Friday, 30 Eastern. I not be here today, I think, through some technical difficulties. They provide a very valuable service in taking time out of their day to come up here and have these conversations. Uh, I respect them all for doing that. We all have incredibly busy practices and demands on our time, but we all do this because we think it's very important and uh, we all care about this space and we want to see it. The CIA got him. I will say this, Carlo. Thank you very much for your great work and moderating these rooms. And uh, you did get a, a little bandwidth problem there towards the end, so I'm not sure we heard everything. But, but thank you very much for putting these rooms together. And I know we all look forward to coming back to the next one.